Wisconsin, a paranormal paradise. With lake monsters, dogmen, haunted hotels, famous ghosts, and deadly killers. It's a lot more than just America's Dairyland. It's time for a deep dive into the weird, wonderful, and terrifying that's lying just below the surface of reality. From American Ghost Walks and Badgerland Legends, this is the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. Welcome into the Wisconsin Legends Podcast. I am Jeff Finnup with Badgerland Legends, and across from me today is... Mike Huberty with American Ghost Walks, haunted history tours in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and beyond. Well, Mike, today I'm going to take you to the Maribel Caves Hotel. Oh, that's exciting. You know, I don't know that much about Manitowoc, but it's, it's a lovely place. Right there in Manitowoc. <laughs> My wife's family lives in Manitowoc, but they're, they're Illinois transplants. Okay. So they came there because her dad was working at the nuclear power plant. Oh, wow. I went there a couple times as a kid, maybe to see the sub or go on the uh, tour of the nuclear power plant. And now I feel like I know Manitowoc intimately. But what I don't know too much about is the most haunted place in Manitowoc County. That's right. The Maribel Caves Hotel is located in Maribel near Cooperstown in Manitowoc County. Now, over the years, it's been home to many legends. It's allegedly burnt three times on the same date. It was the scene of a mass murder and suicide. It was allegedly owned by El Capone during Prohibition. It served as a hideout, as well as a stopover for rum runners, um, including John Dillinger. And the most intriguing is the front fountain. It's a prominent stone fountain. Contains a portal to hell, Mike. What? How? To, look, how can I stay overnight at Hotel Hell? Well, you can't, but... <sighs> As the story goes, a legion of demons escaped and unleashed hell on the nearby town. Fortunately, a white witch stepped in and banished the demons from whence they came. Oh, thank God for that white witch. And then that witch, she sealed that portal. So you don't got to worry about them demons no more. Excellent. Excellent. I'm glad somebody closed off the portal. But, you know, interestingly enough, Manitowoc, the name of the area has a, a paranormal association itself. So when you talk about being a legion of demons, that's in the name of Manitowoc. This, this comes from the Wisconsin Historical Society. There's a, a Reverend E.P. Wheeler gives the name significance as Spirit Woods, which appears to be borne out by a Henry R. Schoolcraft who says it signifies a standing or hollow tree that is under a mysterious influence. This would seem to point to the erection of a wooden cross on the banks of the river, an allusion to they find the journal of a father, J.B. Boussoin saint Cosme, uh, who is a French priest that came through in 1700. He said that a, a cross was erected in this locality in the latter part of the 17th century. Now, the word Manitowoc comes from the Indian word, uh, a, a corruption of the word Manitowage, or spirit spawn. And the Indians imagine that spirits spawn like fish, is how they kind of like one can then go into many. And that the Potawatomis who inhabited the neighborhood in the second half of the 17th century, they put the large cross in one of the settlements, and then that's where the name came from. So that the first part of the word, Manitou, is conceded by all to be the Indian word spirit, or mysterious influence, hence spirit land, or devil's den. Uh, is the name of Manitou. And that comes 
That's obviously an, an older version from the Wisconsin Historical Society of where the name of Manitowoc came from. So already the county has got a little bit of Devil's Den, Spirit Spawn, Place of the Spirits in there. And it's also one of the oldest counties as far as from the white world. Because when Nicolet discovered Wisconsin, he came through Green Bay and landed there. And then... And he founded the Packers. And, of course, the Packers, go Pack Go. And then the main road between, you know, Green Bay and Manitowoc is where the Maribel Caves Hotel was located. Fantastic. So there's been, you know, all these legends and there's been some kernels of truth, but, you know, the ominous stone facade and the dilapidated state of the building are sure to attract many tales. Just So, I mean, if we describe it as it looks like today, like how would you say, when you see pictures... When you see pictures of the Maribel Caves Hotel now, it is one corner tower, a partial wall, the front arch, the prominent front arch, and then a pile of rubble. And we'll kind of get into how it ended up that way. But it, it looks like a classic ruin. It looks like a either a Scottish or medieval European castle. It'd be the perfect place to shoot. You know, the perfect place to shoot. It a would be a great movie. backdrop for a music video, Sunspot. Oh, that's or, a great idea. Or um, a horror movie, or anything like or, that. Or Braveheart too, where Brave, they put Mel Braveheart Gibson too. back together a, and he goes fight, at it. A fight scene would would be a great place. So first to talk about. The Maribel Caves Hotel, we need to talk about the Steinbrecher family. Okay. So we'll start with um, Francis Steinbrecher. He was born in 1865 in Cooperstown and grew up there. Now, the Steinbrecher family owned about a half an acre just north of Maribel along the river. So Francis was one of seven children from Charles and Matilda Steinbrecher. Now, Matilda died in 1884 when Francis was 19. Francis was at seminary at the time that his, his mother died. Well, Francis was off at seminary, his mother died, and his father ended up remarrying. He married a lady by the name of Mary Magdalene Noctway. Now, if there's any guesses on to what religion the Steinbreckers were, <laughs> right? they were devoutly Catholic. Yeah, obviously, a lady's can be named, like Mary Magdalene, you know. Yep. So, Charles remarries Mary Magdalene who is 24 years his junior, and she's only about six years older than Francis Xavier. So they remarry, and now the Steinbrecher family, they're from Hardystock. They homestead on their half an acre, where they received many visitors. Property was like a small village, very self-sufficient. They operated a sawmill, a quarry, two lime kilns, and it said that over 100 people would visit a day in the summer for Mary Magdalene's retreats. So she ran a summer camp there that attracted a lot of the city folk. Okay. So Charles and company, they had quite the operation and thought it might serve them to expand operations. So somewhere around 1884, they purchased 450 acres just adjacent to the property. So pretty much they got this half an acre. They buy 450 more, and uh, they figured it's... That is some kind of expansion. <laughs> that's a 1,000% that's yeah, like yeah, expansion. Exactly. So they go from a half an acre to 450 acre, 
in this, it's kind of, it's kind of wild because it's all river, river bottom stuff. It contains limestone cliffs, caves, uh, lots of nature. It's just untamed Wisconsin, 1884 style. So they purchased the property with plans to expand because obviously it's dangerous to have a hundred people milling about your production facility where you're, where you're, uh, kilning lime, which is pretty much taking limestone, breaking it down to its constituent parts. And then you also have a sawmill going. So you got little kids around. You got to expand operations. And Mary Magdalene, she was very proud of her summer camps. So they decided to expand. And then less than 10 years later, Charles dies. 18, uh, 1891. So Mary Magdalene continued to run the summer camp and Francis brothers continued operations. So Francis was off in Europe. And when he came back, he'd visit on holiday and he'd talk about this method he learned. Now it was wellness movement called the Knipe cure. And it was started by Sebastian Knipe, a German Catholic priest who is an advocate of hydrotherapy. It was called the Knipe cure. And the claim was Knipe cured himself of tuberculosis using hydrotherapy, phototherapy, exercise, nutrition, and balance in the health of mind. Now, I know Mike did some research on this in preparation. Hydrotherapy is something often still used today. Uh, This is from the University of Michigan, their health system, they, they describe it. Hydrotherapy is the use of water to treat a disease or to maintain health. The theory behind it is that water has many properties that give it the ability to heal. Number one, water can store and carry heat and energy. Number two, water can dissolve other substances such as minerals and salts. Number three, water cannot hurt you, even if you are sensitive to your surroundings. Four, water is found in different forms such as ice, liquid, or steam. Ice may be used to cool, liquid is used in baths and compresses at varying pressures, and steam is used in steam baths when breathing in. Five, water can help blood flow. Six, water has soothing, calming, and relaxing effects on people, whether in a bath, spray, or compress. And seven, Exercise in water takes the weight off of painful joints while also providing resistance. And something interesting about Sebastian Kneipp that I, I thought was kind of fascinating is that one of the ways he cured himself um, of tuberculosis is that he would take like cold water baths. And in a modern sense, that's what the Iceman Wim Hof. As I said, it sounds a lot like the Wim Hof method. <laughs> that's totally like the Wim Hof method of taking the ice water baths. So if we talk about like how these different cures and stuff like that have come through time, well, people have claimed that doing the ice baths and breathing methods of Wim Hof have, have cured them of various diseases, just like Sebastian Kneipp did in the mid-1800s. And so, you know, I, I thought that was interesting as well as its connection um, to something called homeopathy. And tell us about that, Mike. Which, well, that also uses water. And this is the definition of homeopathy from the National Cancer Institute. It's an alternative approach to medicine based on the belief that natural substances prepared in a special way and used most often in very small amounts restore health. According to these beliefs, in order for a remedy to be effective, it must cause in a healthy person the same symptoms being treated in a patient. It's based on the idea that like cures like. That is, if a substance causes a symptom in a healthy person, giving the person a very small amount of the same substance may cure the illness. 
In theory, a homeopathic dose enhances the body's normal healing and self-regulatory processes. What does that sound like to you? Uh, it sounds a lot like exposure therapy or modern, I guess, vaccine theory. Exactly. And so, and that's what I was thinking too. And to me, I'm thinking about homeopathy. I'm like, okay, are you going to heal me with crystals or whatever? Mm-hmm. And then I'm looking into the kind of things that are going on, like what Francis was learning about in the 1850s. And this is the kind of hydrotherapy and homeopathy people were doing. This is from a, a magazine or journal called Evidence-Based Complementary and Alternative Medicine in 2010, The Curious Case of Charles Darwin and Homeopathy. Virtually every biography of Charles Darwin references his health problems and acknowledges the one physician who provided the effective treatment was Dr. James Manby Gully. However, most of these biographies make reference to Dr. Gully as a hydrotherapist, and only few mention that he was a homeopathic physician. After being at Dr. Gully's spa for nine days, Darwin lamented that Gully had prescribed homeopathic medicine to him, and he quotes, I grieve to say that Dr. Gully gives me homeopathic medicines three times a day, which I take obediently without an atom of faith. I like Dr. Gully much. He is certainly an able man. But the fact that Darwin saw Gully as being able was still not enough to convince him that the medicines were effective. And so even though he's extremely skeptical of this water cure and homeopathic medicine, just a couple of days later after he starts, Darwin acknowledges, quote, I have already received so much benefit that I really hope my health will be much renovated. After eight days, a skin eruption breaks out all over his legs. And he was actually pleased to experience this problem because he had previously observed that his physical and mental health improved noticeably after having skin eruptions. He went a month without vomiting a very rare experience for him, and even gained some weight. One day he surprised himself by being able to walk seven miles. He wrote to a friend, quote, I am turning into a mere walking and eating machine, unquote. After just a month of treatment, Darwin has to admit that Gully's treatments were not quackery after all. After 16 weeks, he felt like a new man, and by June, he was able to go home to resume his most important work. Darwin actually wrote that he was, quote, of almost perfect health. So this Knipe cure and homeopathy, obviously, to us, sounds a little wacko. A little quackish, yeah. And, right. And it sounds the exact same way that Charles Darwin 170 years ago. But yet, he experiences benefits from it. And he's a very sickly guy. And he, he experiences health benefits from it. So... I think that kind of idea is that whatever it may be, these are the kind of results that people were seeing. So when Francis comes back from Europe, this is why he's excited to bring this method to America. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much where it starts. So you talked about homeopathy, you talked about hydrotherapy, and then the other tenets of it were, you know, plants and botanical compounds. You know, not much different than we think of vitamins and minerals. And then everybody knows exercise, proper nutrition, the balance of having a healthy mind. All of those are going to affect your health. Mm-hmm. So Francis comes back from seminary. He uh, pretty much goes around the world to end up back home. He takes up as a priest at the St. James Church right there in Cooperstown. And this is Cooperstown, Wisconsin, right? Cooperstown, not Wisconsin, where the not the Hall Baseball of Hall of Fame. It's, okay. it's in Manitowoc County, yes. So he goes around the world, comes back, and he's inspired by this Knipe cure. So he wanted to kind of bring this back, this healing power back with him to the new world. And he also wanted to assist his stepmother, Mary Magdalene, with her summer camp. 
So they proposed a hotel and spa like the mineral water retreats that he had seen and visited in Austria while he was in seminary school. So he studied at Salzburg near a place called Mirabel Palace and Gardens. So it was a fitting name for the place. It was an Austrian name, and he wanted the place to have an Austrian aesthetic. So the plans were drafted by Christ H. Teigen. Now, I know who you're thinking of, right? Chrissy Teigen? No, <laughs> right. this guy actually had actually, talent. Actually, I think you, uh, when I hear Teigen, there's a companion from the fifth doctor in Doctor Who that I think of first because my nerd self shows off in the, right. Uh, right, well, right away. Mike outed himself as a Doctor Who nerd on this podcast. So, well, Teigen was a renowned architect. He was known for designing a Holy Family Hospital and the Manitowoc County Insane Asylum. So those were impressive structures for their time. And then he agreed to draft the plans, be the architect for the Maribel Caves Hotel. He went on to design the Manitowoc County Courthouse, the Oneida County Courthouse in Rhinelander, and then several city blocks in Manitowoc. So he was uh, quite the accomplished and renowned architect. Sure. So the plans were approved. The limestone was quarried from the nearby cliffs, and the brothers contracted 30 stonemasons from Kakana. Now, at this time, Francis had moved to Kakana to be a priest in a Kakana parish, and uh, many of his congregation were stonemasons. So in four months' time, they turned Francis Xavier's dream into reality, and the hotel was completed in 1900 and ready for operations. So that's the beginning, kind of the... The plans were laid. It was kind of the... Go ahead, Mike. Well, the hotel's made from what? Limestone. Okay. That'll come back in later. Right. But I can, you kind of, we kind of brush past that. But we're yep. talking about different things that may contribute later on to why people are seeing weird stuff and legends are, are getting around this hotel. The hotel in 1900 is constructed of particularly limestone. Particularly limestone, quarried from the bluffs right there on the property. The self-sufficient little Austrian family... You know, they pretty much do everything. They, they cut the timbers, float them down the river uh, for the interior floors. They have a really rough limestone complexion by design. So if you look at the ruins, you think, well, it looks like just a bunch of stacked stone. That was the aesthetic that they were going for. Okay. Just this kind of rough stone look. So the completed hotel was 50 by 80, three stories tall. The main floor held the dining room and commons while the second and third floor contained 42 guest rooms that could house up to 200 guests. So it was a pretty big resort on 450 acres of land. And if you uh, look at the old tourist brochure from, I believe, 1903, you'll see all these people in their Victorian-era gowns, either like frolicking around the hotel, around the nearby caves, in boats on either the ponds. They have ponds that are backflowages of the the West Twin River, as well as the Devil's River, which is a fun place name. <laughs> and it's just kind of an interesting time where everybody's kind of in what we'd consider like formal attire. Sure. Doing these recreational activities. Oh, I love looking at that stuff from the late 19th and the early 20th century. The kind of stuff, like now you'd see people in like t-shirts and shorts or a sweatshirt and yoga pants or something. Or if it's a 40 degree day in Wisconsin, long sleeve shirt and shorts. That's kind <laughs> like of the... The aesthetic of the Wisconsinite. And they're dressed, they're dressed up like, to, for us, would be going to like the... Three-piece suits, bowler caps. <laughs> right. Yep. They'd, be, they'd be going to the ball. 
Yep, you know, the, exactly. the Cinderella's ball. And so sometimes I wish that we could take that cue uh, and dress up like it must have taken them an hour to get ready, but it sure looks good. It, it looks good and it looks good in, in the pictures. So the front elevation of the hotel resembled a medieval castle, something you'd find in Scotland or the family's native Austria. It had four walls, one corner tower in the front. The back of the hotel had full length verandas that overlooked the open West Twin River and the lush nature that surrounded the hotel. So it was just this nice little idyllic place, fancy people, fancy times, just kind of a diamond in the rough of Wisconsin. Yeah, sounds great. So um, a brochure. Let me grab my bowler hat and I'm going. I'm, I'm That's right. You got, you got your three-piece suit. You look like, uh, you can look like Aaron Rodgers at the MVP ceremony in your <laughs> yes, corduroy suit. Exactly, exactly right. So a brochure from the time reads, fine bathing, boating, and fishing, bold cliffs. Springs sprouting from their sides, four wonderful caves, finest hotel accommodations, rapid falls, and wooded seclusion. 450 acres devoted to quiet pleasure. Come and be pleasantly surprised. Sign me up. Yeah, I'm gone. Now stepping inside, you find everything from the very latest. Bath, toilets on each floor. Hey, now we're talking. Yep. Waterworks, modern furniture, and in fact, everything that is to be found in a palatial home of the day. So the one interesting thing about this place was since they had the natural springs that they pumped in, they had running water. They were probably the first hotel in the area to have indoor plumbing, which was a luxury at the time. We take it for granted. Right. Now, even like even the worst motel that you go to now even the real motel hell you go to <laughs> yep, now exactly. is going to have a like a toilet in every bathroom. Exactly. So it was just a palatial place. It was where your rich and your haughty could get away from the city for the weekend and kind of rough it. Sure. So to speak. And, and then, go cave exploring too. That sounds cool yep. now. And then also the mineral water was a huge draw. We talked about the Knipe Care. So according to the brochure, the water was tested at the UW in Madison here and was shown to contain sodium chloride, potassium chloride, uh, calcium bicarbonate, and magnesium bicarbonate. Now, uh, if you recognize any of those, you know that potassium is a essential mineral for muscle function, calcium bicarbonate. It's common in antacids, and magnesium bicarbonate, uh, that's something you find like an Epsom salt. So mm. taking a mineral bath or drinking the water had healthful effects. It just wasn't tap water. So water of the mineral springs are claimed to have a therapeutic value, which Mike covered earlier. And then just a little thing about these mineral spas. They're common resorts that have developed around mineral springs where often wealthy patrons would repair or take in the waters, meaning that they would drink or bathe the mineral water. So it was a real health movement. And so not only was it a resort for going out to the country, having some relaxation. It was also the idea that just by being in these mineral springs, bathing, drinking, getting the clean water, this clean special water, would have its own benefit. And one interesting luxury that they had is they had a separate bathhouse, a bath quarters, where they brought in actual heated water and you could have a hot bath. Not just like a, a warm bath that's been heated by the sun, you actually have a hot bath, which was definitely a luxury for the day. And then on top of it, 
you get that mineral spring water. So it was a, a real luxury. So that water was really popular. So 1905, the Maribel Mineral Springs Company is organized. And this is by the Steinbrecher family. It bottled the popular water, and thanks to the advancements of the railroad system, they're able to distribute it to restaurants in Milwaukee, Chicago, as well as get it on a rail car and send it out east. Ah, so then yep. Maribel Caves Hotel Water. Yep, the Maribel Mineral Water. And you can find pictures of the bottles. I have yet to find a bottle, but I've definitely flagged them on eBay. So whenever they <laughs> pop up. Interesting. But I, I've talked to some people from the Manitowoc County historical page on Facebook, and they're, they've been really hard to find. And, you know, you have to scour antique stores. I'd like to have one for my collection. So if you know where to find one, shoot me an email. Right. So we talked about the caves on the property. The guests could explore them. And then the other activities included boating, fishing, and ponds nearby on both the uh, West Twin River, which uh, the Devil's River spilled into it. So they, Steinbrecher family, they built this bustling little enterprise. They attracted many to the property. And from the brochure, it seemed like a world-class operation. Sure. But everything wasn't so rosy. Uh-oh. So 1908, the, uh, the bottling plant had a bad fire. It was destroyed. And according to a news article, the hotel was threatened with destruction, but there was no damage reported. So... That was the first fire on the place, and a lot of people think that it got the name Hotel Hell from three fires on the same day, you know, years apart. Mm. Well, we'll we'll see how much validity is that. That's a bad luck day. Like that's the kind of day where you like you yeah. warn, like okay, January sixteenth, we're gonna call the fire department and just have them hang yep. around. Maybe maybe pump some extra mineral water to to fight the right, fire. Right, you got the good stuff right there. So that was 1908-1911, an employee of the hotel commits suicide. Now, the, the news report stated, although he had practically blown off the top of his head with a shotgun, Louis Stesnowski, a Pole, like we couldn't guess from his last name. <laughs> I was going to say Louis Stesnowski. He was age 23, survived attempt at suicide for over 30 hours. He had been in poor health, which led him to suicide. So that's the, the first record of a death on the property. That's bad luck too. Cause that's, I mean, that's 30 hours and you're not feeling 30 good. hours of agony, nearly blow the top of your head off. Oh, and he was hoping for a quick exit, but 30 hours later he finally expired. So that was the, the first documented death. There was another documented death of a retreater. We'll call him that died of a heart attack, which I mean, by he was today's just having standard, too much fun. Yeah, exactly. He went there for health, ended up in a body bag. <laughs> so in 1915, Francis was a full-time priest in Kakana. Uh, his mother was about 56, 57. She'd grown weary of the hotel operations. 1915, what else kicked off? Well, it's, I mean, obviously the First World War. Yep. And as we know, the Germans, the Austria-Hungarians, were the opposite side of the U.S., Oh, yeah, there was posters that would call them the Hun. Yep, so the, they were kind of uh, vilified, called the Hun, and their ties to Austria may have hurt business. Well, there's this, whole, there's this whole Zimmerman telegram, too, that, which I don't even think was real. I, I can't remember if the Zimmerman telegram, was, but it was, it was supposedly that Prussians, Germany, mm -hmm. had sent the Mexican government 
a, a message to try to form an alliance against the United States. So, so pretty it, much infiltrate right. so it America sends out to them, from the South. So through. they're like, okay, join our side in the war because it's already the, you know, the, the Turks and the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians against most of the rest of Europe. And now they're plotting against us in the northern, you know, in the Western Hemisphere. Yep. So like that, that whole thing. And then, and obviously you just have a massive German immigration that came through in the second half of the 19th century. Yep. And about the 1885, I believe. And especially to Wisconsin. Yep. And so people give the Germans a side eye. Yep. So there was anti-Bafarian sentiment afoot. So Mary Magdalene, she grows wary of it. Francis Xavier, he's occupied with his parish in Kakana as a full-time priest. And they decide to lease the property to a gentleman from Chicago. That's well, we always know, a good idea. You, you know what we think about Chicago's, but Chicagoans. But here's the thing. That's where you get the rumors that it was Al Capone, right? But we can't be clear that it wasn't Al Capone, but we're pretty sure. There's, there's a name attached to the lease that's not Al Capone. Right. Also, if this happens before Prohibition, so if the lease happens before Prohibition, this would be before the outfit, yep. you know, uh, the Chicago mob was super wealthy. Yeah, this was five years before Prohibition, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we can pretty much definitely say it wasn't Al Capone, but I'm going to read you a quote, Mike, and you tell me who said this quote. All right. And it said, if every place in Wisconsin that said Al Capone visited was actually visited by Al Capone, he wouldn't have time to run a criminal enterprise. Do you know who said that? I believe that was me. <laughs> it was Mike. That was Mike on Mysteries and Monsters. Paul Bestels. Yeah, Paul's great. Yep. So I jotted that down after Mike said that because it has a lot of credence because there is a lot of Al Capone lore in the Northwoods of Wisconsin and everybody tries to attach their name. And, you know, it's not Attach that, Al's name to It's not saying that Chicago mobsters did not come to Wisconsin and, you know, come it's for well a trip, that they come did. on vacation. Absolutely. But Al Capone just connects to everything. Exactly. Because he's the famous guy, Scarface, with the cigar. And, you know, he's he just... Was, he was the most notorious person from that gangster era. And he was right there in Chicago, not far from Wisconsin. They know they, they used... Wisconsin as their playground. Yeah. So it's not inconceivable to say Al Capone came here, Al Capone leased property here, or Al Capone had a house on this lake. But seeing from the time frame, we're pretty sure it was not Al Capone. So 1916, the Maribel Caves Hotel stable burnt. So another fire, but this only affected the stable, not the hotel. So now, under new management, the guy from Chicago, the clientele started to change. There are rumors of him operating games in the basement, as well as some business on the third floor during his lease uh, from January 17th of 1920. That's when prohibition is enacted. Okay. So they got out of it just in time because prohibition was enacted. And then right after that, you got the Great Depression. So they kind of they kind of exited right at the right time. So this new manager, he held car rallies and motorcycle hill events during his tenure there. Now, if you know anything about auto sports, NASCAR was started amongst what? 
Do you know? No, I don't. It's among rum runners racing each other to see who had the fastest car. That was kind of the genesis of auto racing, specifically NASCAR, is... Now you're going to tell me that Smokey the Bandit was nonfiction. That was a real story, Mike. (laughs) That's okay. No, but that's crazy. I didn't realize that, of course, they need fast cars to outrun the cops. The revenueers and the cops and, you know, anybody trying to break up their operations. Sure. So Also, the other rum runners might kill them. Yep. And there's, there's plenty of lore about this area where they'd have these big diamond T trucks and they would have these big copper kettles welded between the axles. And then they would put a flatbed on top of there, load it down with potatoes, eggs, or they would transport that mineral water to nearby cities like Chicago. And a lot of people think that there was some, you know, bootlegging or... Right, they snuck some hooch in there. Yeah, they were in, in the caves. They're up there. They're secluded. Be a perfect place to run an outfit like that. So you got unsavory characters racing around, doing hill climbs and car rallies. So this highfalutin clientele that came up for the Knipe Cure, for the nature resort, they're not coming with all these hillbillies running around. Right. Things change. Acting all crazy. So the place kind of got a reputation, kind of lost its luster. Now, I mentioned the caves nearby, and I believe it was 1929, the revenuers ended up busting a ring of distillers. Ah. So that's kind of brings credence to the fact that there was actually some illegal alcohol production going on and also the transport industry. So 1927, both Mary Magdalene and Francis Xavier die. So that's kind of the end of the Steinbrecher era. Right. The original era of the people that were making it a legitimate hotel, health spa kind of thing. Yep. So, and that's right in the middle of Prohibition. So 1927 to 1931, the place just kind of falls into disrepair. The guy's lease is up. The Steinbrecher's dead. I believe there's back taxes accruing on the property. And then in 1931, two investors for essentially what was owed in back taxes purchased the property, and then they resold it to Adolf Cherney, another Germanic name, right? Right. A construction company owner, and he purchased the property. So that's the end of the Steinbrecher's. They're done by 1931. Cherney takes it over, and then it became the Cherney Hotel but it never regained that glory of the Knipe retreat days. So I found an advertisement from June 7th, 1940, that announced a grand opening with completely modernized everything new. And that was kind of the draw there. But I don't have any evidence of it being reopened as a hotel. It seemed like it was operated as a tavern. Okay. But there was other accounts that I found in newspapers of them wanting to open a golf course and make it something like you'd find in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin Dells, or like Kohler. Sure. So they wanted to make it like a world-class place again. But it just didn't come to fruition. I don't know if it was the funding or, you know, it was just too big of a project. So Cherney operated it from 31 up until 1972 when he died. So it was a family business. The Cherneys ran it. Until 72. I mean, he had 40 years in there, so obviously he did all right. Yeah. So, and it just never regained that, that glory 
in the prestige of the Knipe Cure era. So they sold it to a guy by the name of Stanley Jerebic. He ran it for about four years. And then after four years, it gets back into the Steinbrecher family. Oh, interesting. So a guy named Dick Wagner is the great-grandnephew of Charles Steinbrecher. Now, I said the Steinbreckers, they had eight kids. You know, seven from Matilda, one from Mary Magdalene. So there's a lot of Steinbreckers still running around the era. Yeah, sure. And then this guy by the name of Dick Wagner, who is a maternal descendant, he reopens the bar, and it's the Maribel Caverns Tavern, or Maribel Caves Tavern, rather. Caverns Tavern does sound, has a nice ring to it. Though. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, there's a lot of rhyme in there. So the tavern occupied the main floor, and he lived above the tavern, but the rest was either occupied or used for storage. It was really a shell of its former self. And that's when the ghosts show up, Mike. All right. So in the late 70s, the place was now the Maribel Caves Tavern, and it was home to outdoor music festivals and bonfires. Now, you can imagine the beer and booze-filled parties, right? You got a live band playing on the back patio, or the house stereo is blasting Houses of the Holy over the PA, right? (laughs) Right. You know, the setting alone was just bound to evoke a ghost tale or two. And if you look at the place from the pictures from like the early 80s, it looks like it should be on Led Zeppelin album art, right? Just this crumbling old stone facade, this castle. So your mind almost immediately goes to ghosts. Now, both the Steinbrecher family and the Cherney family, they've never reported ghosts there. Now, they lived there. Dick Wagner lived there. And then in a 2002 interview, Dick Wagner's wife, Sue Cornley, kind of gave it away. Now, she was asked about the validity of the ghost stories because it started gaining reputation. Sure. A lot of urban re- legends started springing up you know, after those, those bonfire days, the music venue days. And she says it was not entirely accurate. And her husband had told her the only ghost he ever saw was his grandfather walking around in his one-piece nightshirt. Now, that's probably a scary sight for any young man, right? <laughs> right. But that's still cool that he saw the ghost of his grandfather. It wasn't the ghost of his grandfather. It was his grandfather wearing a one-piece nightshirt. Ah. <laughs> so, not an actual ghost. So, it seemed like a pretty clear admission that... They didn't believe, at least the Wagner branch didn't believe that the old place was haunted. Sure. Yep. So, But it's it's the perfect place. And there's so many of our urban legends and ghost stories and everything. They seem to come from that generation of the 60s and 70s where you have like the baby boomer generation come up. And there's so there's, you know, 20 million humans who are mm-hmm. all you know, 15 to 25 at the same time. And you have mass media for the first time. You've got radio and television and nationwide magazines. You get the Rolling Stones and you have all and, the- and you get the Ozzy Osbourne lore. <laughs> you have the Led Zeppelin with the Alistair Crowley stuff. Right. You know, and, and, it's a, a moleskin. All of that stuff is happening. And, and so you have this entire generation and so many people and so much of our legends and ghost stories and things come. But you also have the urban legend spreading through and people saying, guess what I saw? Or, guess what my friend saw? Mm-hmm. And it's the game of telephone that goes through high schools. 
and especially in these smaller towns like this, that they develop over time. And so, but then by the time it gets like the eighties and stuff in the late eighties and, and the time when I think when we grew up, you start, a lot of the stories you've heard are from 20 years ago. And they're like, oh yeah, you know what they saw out at, you know, at the old hotel hell. Yep. And so those kind of things start to spread. So of course, when they ask, uh, you know, Sue Cornley in 2002, they'd be like, what'd you guys see? And she's like, I don't, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't see, see nothing. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but it sounds like Dick Wagner was the purveyor of these because he apparently had installed a casket on the third floor of the hotel. And he was kind of the one that, you know, whispered, this place is haunted. Oh, and, so and he's it, using it, yeah. it as a, right. He makes it an extra fun place. Like we go to a place that's haunted. I'm going to drink beer there. Exactly. So, and, and I'm sitting across from a guy that knows damn well that ghost stories are good moneymakers. <laughs> they, they, it's, it's a great way to get people excited to learn about the history of a place and to want to go to a place in person. Yep. So he runs the tavern until 1984. Now, a news article from June 4th of 1985 mentions that it had been sitting vacant since the previous summer. And this was June 4th of 1985 when a mysterious fire gutted the old building. Uh. So this is the actual first documented fire at the actual hotel, at the hotel hell that allegedly burned three times on the same day. Well, June 4th, 1985, that was the day that the Maribel Caves Hotel burned. So it was pretty much completely gutted. It was deemed a total loss at the time. And at this point, um, the land around the tavern had been sold to Manitowoc County. And I believe that it was in the 60s. The Cherney family signed over the rights to the Manitowoc County. I don't know what it sold for, but they wanted the naming rights to Cherney Maribel Caves Park. So oh, that's sure. what it's called today. So when you have, whenever you drive past it or look it up online, you'll see Cherney Maribel Caves Park. So that was part of the agreement. So that 450 acres is now compressed to just, I think, three or four acres that the actual hotel sits on. And that's the private part. The private and that's, private the, that's part. the private part that's gated off. So at this point, after the fire, the hotel's slated for destruction. And what they're going to do is they're going to essentially dig a hole and just plow the remains, the old limestone into it, and take out the dirt, haul the dirt off, plow it over, right? Sure. But... In 1986, Robert Lyman of the Manitowoc County Historical Society, he rescues it from destruction. Uh, he proposed a redevelopment, but the progress was thwarted by vandals. He was able to get one thing accomplished, and he was able to get it placed on the historic register. So that gave it some protection from just digging a hole and plowing sure. it over. But like many owners before him, the task was just too much, and the vandals coming in there certainly didn't help the situation. Right, and especially there's legend trippers, there's people who want to screw up, there's kids that want to party there, and there's people who want to look for the ghosts. Yep. They yep. want to so you know, stare into the well and the portal to hell. Yeah, exactly. Look into the well. So after that, the Dick Wagner area, where, with all the ghost stories, it becomes abandoned. People start grafting on stories to it. Like you talked about the urban legends, witches and sorcerers, and... The, the place had seen some shit over the years. You know, it went through the turbulent times of uh, World War I, the Prohibition, bootleggers, prostitution, illegal gaming. So it, it had been 
through some stuff. There's plenty there historically, and there's plenty of stories to tell about the place. But of course, people went the paranormal angle. So let's talk about the paranormal activity. Yes. Now, the portal to hell just seems like outlandish on its face. We, we don't have any real evidence of a coven of witches or anything like that, but Mike did find something interesting from the Manitowoc area. Well, I, so I was looking area. through, so I was, um, you know, that's part of it. We were talking about in, in the, the beginning, you're like, okay, there's like the, the white witch has to go save the legion of demons and things. Yep. And then banish the demons to hell, seal the portal, and then, save the day. All through the eighties, there's those stories of cult activity in different places and the satanic ritual abuse and, and all the things that happened in the 80s. And so in places that look like and ain't the ruins of an ancient castle. Mm-hmm. And so this place burns down mid-80s. It looks like the ruins of an ancient castle. And if, if you're going to go, if you're going to tell your friends about a scary place or a place where cultists would meet and con, you know conduct satanic rituals, the Maribel Caves Hotel, that that's the place where it's going to happen in that area that where it looks like. And so I'm looking up, I'm like, okay, let's look for any kind of cult activity in the area or what people have been talking about. And so, you know, a couple of the closest things is uh, Manitowoc Herald Times, uh, May 15th, 1978, a deprogrammed woman tells how she broke her domination. Now, deprogrammed from a cult, I yeah. assume. And she was actually, so she was actually in a cult. Um, but it wasn't a satanic cult. It was a UFO cult that was based in Appleton. Nice. Mrs. Susan Kolb of Kiel, she told the Kiwanis Club um, about how she was getting deprogrammed. She was putting on a presentation. The soft-spoken blonde, who will be 25 years old in June and is expecting her first child in September, once left her husband, Tom, to join the UFO Center in Appleton. Since she was deprogrammed by Ted Patrick at the cost of $5,000, Mrs. Kolb has been reunited with her family. How do I get in that business? Right. I was going to say that deprogrammer business, obviously, we're in the wrong job. She nearly had her family jailed in the two attempts by her parents and husband to remove her from the UFO center, she said. Mrs. Kolb, the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Donald Utecht of Kiel, said parapsychology was used by Charlotte Blob who is the head of the Appleton UFO Center, to dominate my mind through hypnotism, eye power, and mental telepathy. So we do have a cult in the Fox Valley area in 1978. Then there's the report, and this is from a cult of weird, and this is when Making a Murderer came out. So Making a Murderer is this Netflix documentary series about a guy named Stephen Avery, who was wrongly imprisoned by the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department in the mid-80s for murder. He's proven not to have done it after spending over a decade in prison. Yeah, he was uh, exonerated on DNA evidence. Right, and then a few years later, it's said that he killed somebody else, and he gets put back into prison. Now, making a murder is the idea that the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department, not the police department, but the Sheriff's Department, was trying to get out of this big lawsuit uh, that he had pending against They the owed Avery th- a huge settlement. So and they're saying that they framed Avery for a murder, which he claims he did not. Right. And then, because they thought he was a, you know, a real dirtbag anyway, and they're like, well, he probably did something wrong, so they sent him back in. But anyway, so there was a guy that claimed on YouTube 
that it was a cult that actually committed the murder, not Stephen Avery, but it was a cult who used to meet in the basement of uh, the JFK Prep Academy uh, in St. Nazians, which is about, I don't know, 20 miles from Maribel. And uh, that is a place that was a religious community. And actually, people did consider of it, that place, kind of a cult in the late 19th centuries. Now, I don't know if this coven of witches had actually met there that committed the murder that Stephen Avery went to jail for. But let me tell you a little bit about Father Ambrose uh, Oswald and the Utopian Committee of St. Nazians. And this is from the Max Cade Institute for German-American Studies at U- UW-Madison. This is their fall 2010 newsletter. In 1854, Catholic priest Father Ambrose Oswald led his followers across the Atlantic Ocean in New York and then westward to Wisconsin, where he founded the Catholic Utopian Colony of St. Nazians. The community functioned successfully until the charismatic leader's unexpected death in 1873, after which divisions arose and the once effective enterprise began to fail. Now, here's the cult-like part of it. First, Father Oswald believed that he possessed special powers to heal the sick. Indeed, it seems probable that he had become familiar with homeopathic cures because his family had practiced them. He had shown an early interest in studying plants and herbs that could heal illnesses. However, he had also read biblical accounts of people being restored to health through fervent prayer, the laying out of hands, and exorcism. In 1843, Oshfeld openly declared that he had healed 3,160 persons, attributing his power to God. In one community, local doctors called him a quack and demanded both a civil and church investigation, but after a careful inquiry, Oshfeld was found innocent of any wrongdoing. This aspect of his ministry remained part of his work in Wisconsin, and there are those today who still believe he was able to perform miraculous cures. The second controversy that involved Oswald concerned his belief in mysticism, his conviction that he had a special relationship with God and could interpret dreams and visions and see into the future. So now you have this charismatic leader who believes that he can heal the sick. The place that he created became the JFK prep uh, school and now a seminary, I think. Or, Correct. Yep. And, and so... Okay, where does the cult activity come from where people talk about that? There were these weird communes and stuff in the area that regular people might have said, well, these are cult activists. These are these these are not necessarily Satan worshipers, but you get a guy who says he's got a special relationship with God. That doesn't sound like your regular priest. That sounds like a David Koresh style thing. Now, regular priests that were, quote unquote, battling the devil in the early 20th century. In Appleton, you have like, I mean, Time Magazine called him like America's number one exorcist, Theosophus Riesinger, is based in Appleton, a half an hour away from this area in the early 20th century. Like, so there's, I mean, he performed like a hundred exorcisms, like a crazy amount of exorcisms. Um, and he's based in the Fox Valley as well. So you talk about why people might think there's some kind of weird occult satanic activity and stretches back through history. Well, we got these communes. In the 70s, we have UFO cults. And then in the 80s, when people are talking about things like satanic ritual abuse and they're worried about this kind of activity in places where people would have these rituals and do these kind of things, number one, the ruins of the hotel are a perfect place. And number two... You have a history going back 
over 100 years of kind of weird stuff in the area and non-traditional religions and communities that formed that were kind of secretive to themselves. And so you can see where some of these um, legends develop because now it's the game of telephone and it's high school kids talking to each other, wanting to dare each other to go to these places, trespass and sneak in at night so they can get scared and everything. The legend trips that I read about on Badgerland Legends. Yeah. Right. And be one of them, spend the night in Hotel Hell, right? Check in at Hotel Hell. Exactly right. And so that this kind of stuff, it only spreads. And when we're talking about the, um, you know, Hotel Hell and this place, we are in the perfect place for traditionally ghost stories to happen. So what were we talking about before? Number one. We got, we got two things. Uh, we're starting off with, it's a place made of limestone, right? That's correct. So Lime, it, limestone and mineral water. And how do they relate to the paranormal, Mike? Well, I mean, you can just go through, this is just from Huffington Post, 2011. They're going to interview Grant Wilson and Jason Hawes from the Ghost Hunters. And they're talking about, and this is the headline, Ghost Hunter stars, Grant Wilson and Jason Hawes. Water, limestone, and railroad tracks increase paranormal activity. And here's the quote. However, Hawes says there are common factors shared by many paranormal sites. Quote, one thing we found is that you find more paranormal activity around flowing streams of water, railroad tracks, and places with high limestone deposits. Places that rank high in these ghost hunting guys list include the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park and the Burge Cage Theater in Tombstone, Arizona. And so right there, he's describing a couple of things very near the hotel. And then... Uh, you know, interestingly enough, when I was looking at people who were interested in the paranormal properties of water, we go back to 1885, January 2nd. This is Science Magazine, still around today. And this is a letter written by um, L.F. Ward, who would eventually become like the first president of the American Sociological Association. And, quote, why is water considered ghost proof? And this is his letter. And he's talking about. So this about, would maybe be related to almost like holy water. Well, he's related to water in general. Okay. And but I'm, I'm just saying, where where did that idea of ghost proof come from? Do you well, think it came from the sacrament of the waters? I would imagine holy water. There's the idea that like vampires can't cross running water. Okay. That ghosts can't cross running water, and there's these cross cultural traditions of different cultures that could have no connection to each other believe similar types of things. And so in his letter, he writes, we find it much easier to deal with practices similar enough to show corresponding workings of the human mind, but also different enough to show separate formation. Only this morning, I met with excellent instance of this. Dr. Yarrow, your authority on the subject of funeral rites, described to me a custom of the Utes. The Utes are Utah. Utah the Indian, Indian tribe, Utah. yeah, Utah Indian, of disposing of the bodies of men they feared and hated by putting them under water in streams. After much inquiry, he found that the intention of the proceeding was to prevent their coming back to molest the survivors. Now, there is a passage in an old writer on West Africa where it is related that when a man died, his widow would have herself ducked in the river in order to get rid of his ghost, which would be hanging about her, especially if she were one of his most loved wives. I know when I tell my several wives which one is most loved. Uh, which one is that, Mike? 
<laughs> yeah, my uh, I don't I I can't say it out loud because one of them's going to get mad. That's right. Having thus drowned him off, she was free to marry again. Here, then, is the idea that water is impassable to spirits, worked out in different ways in Africa and America, but showing in both the same principle, which, indeed, is manifested by so many peoples in the idea of bridges for the dead to pass real or imaginary streams, from the threads stretched across brooks in Burma for the souls of friends to cross by, to Catlin's slippery pine log for the Choctaw dead to pass the dreadful river. In such correspondences of principle we trace, more clearly than in mere repetitions of a custom of belief, the community of human intellect. So he's saying that all these different traditions have a spiritual aspect to water that there's no way that they could have cross-pollinated. We're not talking about Greek and Rome. The Greece, you know, where they kind of they can transmitted right. We're not even talking about Europe and like the Levant or the Middle East of places where there was trade and there could be total disparate relig- yeah. or uh, culture. You're talking about West Africa and Utah, and so that idea of uh, the spiritual attached to water. Now, there's a paper. Um, written by Lindsay Danielson, the Department of Resource Analysis at St. Mary's University of Minnesota. And this is, relates to the ghost hunters. So she was trying to use geographic information systems, GIS, to analyze relationships to explore paranormal occurrences in the continental United States. So looking for correlations between different locations that are paranormally active, allegedly? Yes. So um, places that are close to water, close to limestone, close to quartz, close to fault lines. And then what she was using were episodes of the ghost hunters, places they went to, and she went through and actually valued them differently from the places that they had, they said there was no paranormal activity to the places that they said there was high paranormal activity. And it was scheduled. This is basically a statistics paper where you try How to How do say, I get research funding for this? I was going to say. Watch Ghost um, Hunters and play with GIS? Right. One of the interesting things she found is that the early seasons of Ghost Hunters, they said more places didn't have paranormal activity than the later seasons of Ghost Hunters. So she was suggesting that as time went on, they were lowering their standards for paranormal investigation. You wouldn't say. They would never do that. <laughs> right. Not for Who TV. Who would do that on the television? So, uh, quote, it is, and then this is where she talks about running water. It is also hypothesized that running water, like the spring, like the river, that's near the Mirabal Caves, um, can be used as a source of energy, much like a battery for paranormal activity. She quotes a paranormal blog that's actually in the, like the Rapid City Journal out of South Dakota. Mark Rowland, the lead investigator for the Black Hills Paranormal Investigations, summarizes a theory by explaining... Quote, because paranormal activity is believed to be electrical in nature and water is an electrical conductor, water can conduct paranormal activity. He also suggests because running water produces energy and paranormal activity requires energy to manifest, it can draw the required energy from running water. Now, she looks at these places that have limestone, she looks at fault lines, she looks at quartz, and she looks at water proximity to where the ghost hunters did their stuff. And... Uh, how much, like, if it was believable paranormality or not. And when she does the statistical analysis, she finds that limestone has the highest positive correlation with the haunted uh, location classification. 
and it also suggests a significant correlation between localized areas of quartz deposits and the haunted locations. She didn't find it for water. She didn't find it for fault lines. But, and, and now remember, this is statistics where things can be adjusted and stuff. And this is like an academic paper. But it was an interesting thing that when, when she was doing that kind of, she was using like the kind of stuff you get from the government, the, the, the geographic information systems, compared to where the ghost hunters were doing their thing, she found that the ones closest to limestone seemed to have the highest correlation to paranormal activity. Wow. That's cool. And, and, and right there, Hotel right. Hell on the limestone cliffs, quarried from limestone. So, you know, I've been doing a lot of research on this. Uh, it's actually been really hard to source a lot of the history of this place. It's not been widely written about. There's not been a book about it, which is quite shocking. So if somebody wants to write one, I think this would be a fertile topic. But uh, when doing my research, I connected with a guy by the name of J.D. Scadabo. Now, he's the founder of Friends of Maribel Caves. Okay. And he has spent many hours in the park. He's done just unending research. He's got over 1,400 documents, uh, paper clippings, stories from the family, diaries, and so on and so forth about the history of the Maribel Caves. So I asked him, you know, after kind of getting friendly with him and, you know, just getting more and more of the historical stuff, of course, I have to get into the weird side. That, right. So yeah, sneak it in there. Like, I guess sneak oh, it I'm in there. I'm searching the history. And then what about the ghost? Man? You know, and, and me and Mike were talking before the show when... I go on one of Mike's ghost walks. I go for the history and stay for the ghosts. And that's kind of how I am with my research aspect. I would rather find out the history about it and then also find out what the ghost story is. Right. So I asked him and he wrote back to me with this very succinct answer. He says, one can make a ghost appear to be anywhere they wish. If you want a ghost at Maribel, then sure, there's a ghost at Maribel. I ask, which ghost do you prefer? The Native Americans from the Barrel Mounts? The French and Jesuit? This was the main trailhead. That's where they got buried, at the trailhead. Or is it the servant who died of food poisoning? How about the health resorter who died of a heart attack? How about those that were just old and died? Gangster ghost? Sure, I'm sure we could spin a tale from the facts that would make just believable enough. So he's saying, we can, we can take all of this lore and spin it into a ghost story. And then he said, I'll ask a ghost hunter, what ghost, from when, and whom or who? So that was what he responded to me when I asked him. Now, I know his reply is probably going to piss off a lot of ghost hunters and applaud <laughs> a lot of paranormal enthusiasts saying, you know, you can, you can graft on these stories, you can dig into the history and find you know, is it a rum runner? Is it Dillinger's ghost? Is it uh, the servant that blew his head off? Right. It could be any one of those. But we don't have a lot of ghost stories. We have ghost stories, but we don't have like specifics in time. Like, oh, I saw Charles Steinbrecher, the patriarch of the family, looking over the place that his sons built. Right. We don't have any stories of that that I could really dig up to specifically point to a ghost where it seems like a lot of those, like, talk about the Orpheum Theater downtown, the new Orpheum. 
there's specific ghosts for specific areas of of the theater. Right. And and I find it really interesting that we don't have a lot of specifics and maybe I just didn't come across them. But to those who are disappointed in JD's statement, here's what I have to say. Now, we like ghost lore because it helps us remember history. It's a way to bring that history into the present day. Ghosts anchor the past to the present, and they don't allow us to forget our history. So I think that's what we have to remember about this paranormal investigation is these ghosts, whether real or imaginary, they help us remember the time and the place in the events that happen. Right. And the, and the stories keep the places alive where sometimes you might not be interested in the history, but you're interested in, interested in the ghost stories. And that's why you see a lot of historical societies who are more than willing to entertain the ghost tales or talk about the paranormal experiences, documented or otherwise, because they bring interest to a place, they bring revenue, and they keep what you know, the foundation that they're running afloat. And as we're talking about that, we talk about how to remember things and how to honor things. There are a couple of interesting things that do connect to the history of the Maribel Case Tavern and the hotel and everything that uh, do connect in a little way that, that people might be, well, heartened by a little scientific evidence of the paranormal. All right, dish and it one, out, Mike. And so we've talked about the stone tape theory before, and it's something a lot of ghost hunters talk about, is you know, the, the stone tape theory is this idea that a place can save a memory or it can save an experience like a, like a recording. Which isn't too bizarre because we know that um, crystals can store things. Our silicone, silicon computer chips right. are used and they are, you know, a finite material. Well, and we know that a record is made through grooves. And so you listen to a, I mean, kids, you know, you listen to a vinyl record, you go back, it's a needle playing. Hipsters on, love vinyl, so. <laughs> that's true. They probably, they probably remember it more than, they probably listen to more vinyl than I have when I stopped listening to vinyl in 1991. But, you know, it's a, it's a physical recording is that the groove in a record, when the needle goes over it, it plays the song. And so this idea of the stone tape is the same kind of thing could happen to the walls of a place and it could save a a recording of it that it plays back under the right conditions. Limestone is often considered to be the best medium for the stone tape or what uh, parapsychologists call place memory, like the memory of a place. And so limestone is often considered to be one of the best mediums for it because limestone is made of organic material. So limestone is fossils from millions of years ago all crushed together. And so the idea is, I mean, if we say homeopathy is that like cures like, limestone is that like understands like. Like it's organic material is the medium on which a ghost can be played like a record player. And so um, there's a, it's not just limestone, though. It's also water. And if we look at this 2005 journal article from 
the Australian Journal of Parapsychology. It's Pamela Ray Heath, A New Theory on Place Memory, uh, the Australian Journal of Parapsychology. She has a specific section in this paper on homeopathy. So before we delve deeper into discussing the physics involved in energy medicine, it seems important to address one point, whether any of these methods have actually been proven to work in controlled studies, and there does seem to support for this notion, at least for homeopathy. Homeopathic remedies are created through a process known as succession, which involves the violent shaking of increasing dilutions of a molecule until a final mixture is reached that may contain none of the original ingredient, only the information called by the association of the water with it. Then the brandy carrier solution is used for a final remedy, which is typically dropped upon the tongue, make it easy to create a blind placebo situation. She cites several studies and meta-analyses of double-blind or randomized placebo-controlled trials and finds that homeopathy appeared to have an effect beyond that of a placebo. These results are tempered with caution, whatever, but the idea is that place memory, and this is from the abstract of the article, place memory appears to involve the storage of information by the environment, which can be retrieved through paranormal means. This concept has been around since the inception of parapsychology, and in recent years, it has been generally accepted that it is the living, not the dead, that appears somehow to be involved in the creation of place memory. Although some theories have been proposed for how place memory works, none of them are definitive. We are talking about the paranormal here. It's been recently proposed that it might aid our understanding of the phenomenon to consider the possibility there may be two ways by which place memory is created, one active through psychokinesis, that's like us using our minds to embed uh, the memory, and the other passive, occurring more often within proximity, recency of frequency of repetition. The theories discussed that resonance might be the mechanism of action for the creation of this passive place memory. Furthermore, recent advances in physics would suggest that this information, regardless of its method of creation, might not require any special psi field, but could be stored via the configuration of the atomic electron cloud and the geometric structure of molecules, including water. So the idea of this paper is that water might have some kind of memory, uh, and there's a scientific basis for that. Now, let's say that is a controversial position, <laughs> at yeah. least, but the Australian Journal of Parapsychology, at least she had to have this article peer-reviewed before she published it. This idea that limestone and the running water is the place where these ghost stories happen, that to me, you know, when you see these studies that show these things that have unique properties around that, that's like, okay, maybe something is happening. And there's this crazy study at, from 1971, the detection of magnetic fields caused by groundwater. This is from the Utah Water Research Laboratory and you've got Larry Jensen and Dwayne G. Chadwick. This is 50 years ago. These are, these are scientists that are trying to see if groundwater, the water can affect a magnetic field. And how they did it is they tested dowsing. So you know what a dowsing rod is, right? Yep. To, to, are they copper or brass? It depends. You can use a, very, a variety of types of metal. But a lot of people use copper, and they've got a couple of rods that kind of can move together and move apart. And people use them for ghost hunting. Yeah, Mike brought them on the pub crawl that we did. Yeah, that's right. We did use. And in front of the Barrymore Theater, they, they were going off. It was weird. Yeah. Um, and at the Ohio Tavern as well. 
Oh, yeah, it was going off weird there. But people would use these to try to find water. And it's called water witching. And they've been doing this for centuries. And these guys were like, okay, let's study it and see. And so he's even, you know, I read the whole article, but the abstract kind of explains it the best. Perturbations on the Earth's magnetic field may coincide with the existence of groundwater. Theoretical calculations are made showing how and to what extent this effect may exist, but the suggestion is also made that water dowsers may get a dowsing reaction as a result of entering a change in magnetic gradient. Tests were conducted to determine the statistical significance of dowsing reactions attained by separate individuals dowsing in a common area. Approximately 150 people participated in the experiment over a period of one year. The uh, statistical tests showed considerable significance. Virtually all people tested experienced dowsing reactions, though most of them had never doused before. There is some evidence of correlation between magnetic gradient changes and dowsing reactions. So we're talking about the power of water and electromagnetism and fields and these unique properties that drew these people to this place in the first place. And you're seeing that homeopathy, it sounds like something that you're going to, you know, buy at a new age fair or whatever. Or the snake oil salesman (laughs) that comes to town in the late 1800s with this magical potion that'll cure. He's going to like the, the, you know, at the, at the utopian community in St. Nazian's, they're going to do homeopathy and hydrotherapy, the Kripe method. How did this guy cure his tuberculosis? The thing is, is that there seems to be some statistical scientific evidence that shows, okay, the groundwater does have a weird effect on the magnetic field. Okay, we're talking about the electrons and magnetic stuff when we're talking about the memory of water. And And I know some modern psychics use psychometry where you can hand them an object and they can tell you the history of it. Right. And so, so it's kind of embedded in the molecular structure. I mean, at least that's the working theory and what you say is, you know, it's, it's parapsychology, so it can't be proven, but at least we can conduct experiments that show there right. may be some statistical significance to it. And also you conduct experiments with that actually have variables and, and not just and controls into built a pl- in. Yes. And placebos. Uh, and so we talk about the Marable caves and hotel hell. And yes, all the history is questionable. You can find some real stuff. And, and people say they've had all these kind of crazy experiences there. And so, yes, the experiences might not be exactly matched up to different things, but there's a whole variety of things that they could be experiencing, which are psychic impressions left of gangsters or prostitutes or, you know, all those kind of things. Psychic impressions left of teenagers sneaking in there for decades to screw around or who wanted to see a ghost. It doesn't necessarily have to be connected to somebody getting murdered or a den of witches or maybe the UFO cult from Appleton, one that came there and tried to call the Space (laughs) Brothers down one night. But the idea that these places where we put so much focus and legends and things on, even if we're not entirely historically accurate, which obviously none of these things, like the white witch coming in to shut it down and stuff, it's a cool story, but there's no proof or there's no historical record of it. nothing verifiable, yes. But putting all of our energy into these places might still result in paranormal experiences. And that is the power of the legend. And that's why we ask, 
Do we enchant the land or does the land enchant us? I think it's a little bit of both. And I, I think so too. So just to close out, the Marable Caves Hotel in 2013, a tornado ripped through the area. Winds knocked down most of what was still standing. Now, it had been kind of a husk of itself from that 1985 fire. So the tornado with the heavy winds came in and just knocked everything down except for a corner tower, sidewall, and left a partial wall standing. So what you see when you drive by today, go on Google Maps or look at Google Photos, is just ruins now. So that's, I went to a geocaching site. You know, geocaching where people yep, try to find the yep, GPS. The GPS coordinates and, yep. and everybody got like, they would, all these people went there, took a picture with the ruins in the distance mm-hmm. and they added a little ghost in there. I, di- I did see that. I saw that pop up on. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yep. So Marable Caves Hotel is private property. It's still uh, part of the Lyman family. Bob Lyman has since passed on, but uh, the land is, I believe, owned by his son. So it is private property. It is under surveillance. So trespassers be warned. Right. Don't go and have also, your satanic ritual there. And also the runes, they're, they're not stable. You know, you could get crushed by a piece of uh, falling limestone if a ghost or demon doesn't get you. Right. You could, you could be the, you could be a, you could turn into a ghost there and also win a Darwin award. That's right. Yep. Ghost hunter of the year award. <laughs> so that's what I have on the Marable Caves Hotel. Sounds great. Well, I, I was exciting to learn. I didn't know much about this. It was exciting to research. And, and Jeff, I'm glad you taught me so much about this place. And one of these days, I want to get a picture and stick a fake ghost in there just for fun. There you go. And if you want some Marable Caves merchandise, I have Hotel Hell t-shirts. Ooh. And if you go to badgerlandlegends.com slash hotel hell, you'll see them there and take you a link where you can buy a cool t-shirt. Fantastic. Sticker, coffee mug, whatever you want. So go buy a Hotel uh, Hell t-shirt at badgerlandlegends.com slash hotel hell. And if you guys want to take a haunted history tour throughout a lot of different places in Wisconsin uh, or want to learn more about haunted history and legends and folklore and all that kind of stuff through a lot of the state, please check out AmericanGhostWalks.com. And sign up for that newsletter because every Saturday morning you'll be greeted with at least one story from Wisconsin. Oh yeah. That you don't know about because I get one almost every week where I'm like, Mike didn't tell me about this place. <laughs> well, that's because I say it for the newsletter. That's right. <laughs> tries to stump me, I try to stump him. Sounds so yeah, good. you can check me out, badgerlandlegends.com at badgerlandlegends on Instagram, badgerlandlegends on Facebook, and then check out our Facebook group that's called Wisconsin Legends, where you can join in the chat. Me and Mike are pretty active members there. Yeah. Haunt you later. Laters. Hey guys, real quick. This is Mike from Wisconsin Legends Podcast coming at you, letting you know that Jeff and I will be working on season two of Wisconsin Legends coming up right after this Halloween 2022. So please, if you go to wisconsinlegendspodcast.com, you can go to the bottom of the screen and hit subscribe and we'll tell you when the new episodes are out. Or you can follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts, you will find Wisconsin Legends.